This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Sally Denton. She is a best-selling investigative reporter and historian. She's the author of nine books, including the true crime classic, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. And she divides her time between Nevada and her home here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Sally, welcome. Thank you, John. It's so good to be on my local hood radio station. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you. Uh, Sally, you have uh, just written a book called The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. This book is about something that I think probably many people will remember being a, a, a big news story, at least momentarily, where there were a number of Mormons killed in northern Mexico. This got a lot of attention, and then it just sort of disappeared. What's the story? Well, it did get a lot of attention. Actually, these are fundamentalist Mormons, not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but they're, it's an offshoot of uh, that the mainstream Mormon church. And you're right, it got a lot of attention. Basically, the event is that on November 4th, 2019, a caravan of women and children, three mothers and 14 children were brutally attacked and uh, murdered in northern Mexico. They were driving in a caravan of three SUVs and uh, were traveling together, the three mothers with their children in their individual cars. And the victims were members of two fundamentalist Mormon communities in Mexico. One is called La Mora, which is in the state of Sonora, and the other one is LeBaron, which is in the state of Chihuahua. But they were interrelated. So uh, in the end, there were three women and six children who were killed. And it happened in broad daylight. It was on the news. Everybody in the world probably saw this initial you know, it was so heinous and grisly. And these were these beautiful young mothers. And it seemed like it was such a a strange situation. There was a lot of coverage by all of the international news outlets at the time, but then everybody kind of left it alone. Initially, the government said, the Mexican government said that they had been, they were victims of mistaken identity. And then they said they were caught in a crossfire between rival cartels. But it was clear early on uh, when I first started looking at it that that this happened in broad daylight. There was no case of mistaken identity. Some of it was videotaped and that these women and children were targeted. So that really begs the question. And again, the first assumption I think a lot of us had when we we saw the news was, oh, okay, this is more, you know, drug cartel related stuff. And of course, it was that was the the, the narrative being pushed. But why why would these women and children be targeted and is it was it really drug cartel related well that's basically when i decided to look into it and write a book it was really you know i was spurred on by from the moment i saw it on cnn i knew it was more complicated than the government narrative was posing uh, just because it was obvious that that they were probably polygamous from that region, even though then President Trump at the moment, as soon as it happened, he tweeted before before the Mexican 
law enforcement had even gotten to the scene of the crimes, the three different vehicles, he tweeted that it was, you know, a, a beautiful family from the United States who was kind of randomly killed by cartels. And, and then he immediately said that he was going to have the cartels designated as terrorists in the United States, which would serve as a pretext for the United States to invade Mexico. Really it within... It's clear to me from the beginning, John, that these were not, uh, first of all, it was, as I said, it was not random. And, you know, they were identified early on as members of these two communities down there. And I've written several books on organized crime and cartels and drug trafficking and Mormons. And so I was familiar with these polygamous communities and knew that it was more complicated than what than what Trump was saying. And Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, immediately rejected Trump's offer. So that ended that. But the family members, the LeBaron family members took it up and came to Washington and started lobbying for that. So I just, you know, when I, I knew immediately that I wanted to write a book about it when I learned about the incident, because as I said, it, it was in my wheelhouse from other books that I've written. And the first question to me was why why were these three women and 14 children traveling on one of the most dangerous roads in the world, a major uh, drug smuggling route into the United States after, as it turns out, the families had been warned the night before that there was a lot of violence on the road and had been warned to stay to stay off it. So that was my first question. And honestly, after three years of writing and researching it, I still had the same question. Where were the husbands? Who, who sends their children and wives out into a war zone like that? It is a big question. The two immediate answers that pop to mind are abject stupidity or it's a setup. Right. And that's what I explore in the book and all the possible motives and uh, suspects in this. It became clear very early on that not only that they were targeted, but that this was probably a message sent to to the men in their families because it was, you know, and this is kind of organized crime 101, you know, if you're going to hit somebody, usually hit the, the first warning shot goes to taking out a member of the family. And if you don't heed that, then they come after you. But it was just so clear. And from my sources in law enforcement on both sides of the border and on both sides of the law, I was told and it became clear that they were targeted and specifically the first vehicle with the, a woman and four children who were burned alive. And that murder was videotaped or was taped, was recorded on a cell phone, which was later apprehended by the police and the Mexican police, but showed the showed the entire incident and they had ransacked the car. And so it, there was absolutely no, it was no case of mistaken identity. Let me back up just for a second. Uh -huh. The president's reaction, Donald Trump's reaction, do you look at that as him just shooting from the hip or is there some other kind of motive maybe within within the gov our government to immediately get down there and have a presence? Well, I think that what was odd about it is um, I think he went on uh, Bill O'Reilly. It was on some other show where um, he said, 
he said, we're getting him, uh, you know, the cartels designated as terrorists as a result of this incident. And then he let slip that they had actually, he had actually been working on that for a couple of months before this incident even occurred. So, it, and there were so many, as is true in Mexico in general, I mean, it's, it is, um, there are so many murders and by cartels that it's easy to just dismiss one more as this is the random violence that's become pro forma or status quo in Mexico right now. But there were so many rumors and conspiracies surrounding this event because it was so brutal and sad and these children and then the Mormons. And there were rumors from the beginning swirling that you know, this was even, in fact, one of the LeBaron family members even went on CNN and said that the family had been told that this was a setup to to create tension in the air in the area in order to provoke the U.S. government to to step in. And um, and there were rumors that it was a CIA attempt to the uh, U.S. government to come in and take control of the resources, which are vast in these in this area of Sonora and Chihuahua. There were rumors that the women were trying to escape from the polygamous community. There were rumors that one of the tar one of the targets was an activist against their neighbors who have been accusing the LeBaron family of encroaching on their lands and expropriating their their uh, resources, particularly water. So there were so many rumors. And basically, I started out looking at the book, as I do, all most of my books are about um, kind of enduring, mystery, some of which are historical, and just taking it like from the beginning and looking at all the aspects of the of the case and trying to find the the motives. And when you start looking at that, you know, who benefits from this? And obviously there were, it was also a very chaotic and tempestuous time because this is an area where as I said, these Mormon fundamentalist families had been for a long time. In fact, the LeBaron family had been in Chihuahua since the 1890s. So once I realized that, this is not like some group that was just passing through and happened to be practicing polygamy. They are longstanding natives, if you will, of Mexico. And they went down to, they initially settled in Chihuahua when polygamy became illegal in the United States in 1890, and they had to, the practitioners of polygamy had to break from the church and go practice polygamy in Mexico. Then I got stuck. Well, I didn't get stuck. It was clear that I, it was imper imperative that I kind of uh, went back through the history leading up to them being there to begin with. Why were they on that road? And you couldn't answer those questions until you, until you started looking at, well, what's the history of the Mormon fundamentalists in Mexico to begin with? And so I, there's a lot of historical context in this. So these folks weren't just, uh, they, they were long-term residents who knew the lay of the land and knew the the dangers that were in the area. So it wasn't, as you pointed out, this wasn't uninformed tourists. Yeah, not just long-term residents, but had lived side by side with these violent cartels for the last, they predated the cartels. I mean, they and I think it cannot be separated. The event can't be separated from the fact that it was also just uh, weeks after Joaquin uh, Guzman El Chapo was finally incarcerated, had been arrested and indicted and charged, tried and charged and found guilty. And 
incarcerated in the Supermax prison in Colorado. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener-supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. Now, he had been in complete control, and that area had been dominated by the Sinaloa cartel for 30 years. And during that time, the families had a um, sometimes tense, but in general, a pretty gentlemanly arrangement. And so I think that um, when when El Chapo was was incarcerated, that threw the region into chaos and and uh, and rivalries, uh, different people, different um, elements, different cartels um, trying to take over. The Sinaloa, uh, seeing the the opportunity to try and encroach on Sinaloa cartel territory, so it was against that backdrop and you know a cauldron of uh, uh, violence that was going on in the midst of that that this happened. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. In the short time we've been talking, we've discussed cartels, <laughs> uh, the CIA. Uh, <laughs> some sort of betrayal within the uh, the the polygamous Mormon community, and you explore all this in the book. Let's not dig too much deeper into that, since we've piqued everybody's interest. That's just part of it. Every, I mean, as I was researching it and then writing, I couldn't believe it. Just when I thought that this gets as you know, this is in as as insane as possible, you turn the page to the next chapter and you're in the middle of a serial murderer within the family and then the family's relationship with the Nexium sex uh, cult in, in upstate New York and Keith Raniere advising them and and then with uh, out you know outright water wars in one of the ground zero for the climate change drought ridden arid lands of the the Sierra Madre, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from us in New Mexico. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sex, drugs, and violence. Uh, <laughs> sounds like a good movie. Actually, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about Tom Clancy's uh, book, Clear and Present Danger, where they use a pretext to go and attack uh, terrorists in um, in uh, South America and Colombia. Uh, well, not terrorists, but drug uh, a drug cartel uh, by designating them as terrorists. So it's life imitating art. I didn't and, know that. I haven't read that, but it's really interesting because the LeBaron family then found a law firm, a big law firm in North Dakota or North Carolina or both that decided to file a lawsuit against the Juarez cartel and declaring them as terrorists and, and uh, just got a judgment from a, a jury, even though there were no there was no defendant and no case presented or anything, but a judge in uh, North Dakota awarded the LeBaron family uh, $4 billion, I think, in damages. And it's like, well, good luck collecting Collecting, it without a defendant. But that Uh, seems to be a uh, political expedience of political desire of these communities. They're making a play for sovereignty right now in Mexico. Anyway, I lay it all out and 
I don't solve the case for those those in the audience who are looking for a good who done it. This is a great who done it with at the end. Well, I don't know. You choose. There's like <laughs> one of many or many many of right. many. Yeah. And there's and also John, there's these alliances that have been alliances and um, and rivalries and competitions and and collusions that date back decorate you know decades with between cartels are not living in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the workers, I mean, obviously, if not all of them, are from there and have families there and are related to the cartels need the water. And what's another relevant point here, the LeBaron's got these huge plantations, you could call them almost, of, of pecan farms that take an inordinate amount of water and are extremely profitable. And so you've got the pecan farmers competing with the the marijuana and methamphetamine and, and fentanyl, the laboratories, and then you've got, you know, the avocado growers, and they're all in this same little clump. And the agave growers for tequila, there's a lot of people competing for a dwindling supply of water in all, each of which is billion dollar industries. So is this what New Mexico looks like a hundred years from now? Yeah, well, I tell you, there are a lot of cautionary tales in this book, and not least is the direction that the American Southwest is going. Indeed. Let me ask you, well, first of all, uh, we don't know who who ordered this, or or you you give options by the end of the book. Were any of the actual perpetrators, the ones that uh, committed the the, the atrocities, were they ever tracked down, or, or are those people still running free? Well, first of all, you can, um, as far as who gave the orders, you can kind of figure it out by who was controlling the region at the time. There were said to be almost 100 gunmen. I mean, that is overkill for unarmed women and children. And um, so you're talking about almost 100 Sicarios, armed Sicarios. That was one of, there was a rocket launcher. There were AR, you know, long guns and automatic weapons. There, the uh, one car had 371 bullets alone. So this was, at the very least, a message, and at the very least, a message that was stronger than it needed to be. They could have knocked out a woman and by herself if there was one target. So there's there's that, and then the fact that nobody has been. It's still an open case, and I think there have been seven, 50 to 75 people who have supposedly been arrested and. Whenever there's heat on the Mexican government to solve this case, they suddenly arrest somebody and parade him on the street with handcuffs, and and then he disappears. I mean, as quickly as the story itself disappeared, all of the uh, all of the suspects, nobody's gone to trial, nobody's been convicted. Yeah, the government would say that the case is solved, and most of the people they've arrested are members of the Juarez cartel or La Línea, which is the armed. Uh, enforcement group of the Juarez cartel, but yeah, it's an open case. How did you gain your sources? How did you how did you start getting information about this? Uh, now I, I'm I'm gonna assume you didn't travel down there. I didn't travel down there, but I had been down there in the past. And you read the book, I, I end up bringing in my own Mormon heritage, which becomes relevant. I didn't bring it in just to show that I know something about this, but it turns out that it's relevant and there are direct connections with the forebears of the LeBarons to the early history of 
the practice of blood atonement in Utah and other fundamentalist extremist practices of the Mormon church from the 1800s. The first thing I did was really try to make contact with some of the women in the community because I've done, you know, I've written about polygamy and I'm familiar with, in general, the polygamy doctrine or principle is that it's key to the purest Mormon beliefs, which is that the patriarch of the family is supposed to have, should have as many wives as possible and have as many children as possible. Polygamy is illegal in Mexico, even uh, just as it is in the United States, but it's been kind of grandfathered in since Porfirio Diaz, the president of Mexico in the 1800s, allowed them to come. But the practice is generally the man can only have one legal wife. And so there's one wife who's the legal one, and usually or often that is somebody who's got dual citizenship and can travel back and forth to the United States. And then the the other wives are common law wives, basically. So they don't have much agency to travel. They don't have birth certificates or, you know, social security cards. And so I really started trying to, the first thing I did was tap into that community of women, these wives that were, as you can imagine, absolutely horrified at this level of violence that attacked their community and especially their women and children. And I found that that was a, a really rich vein of sources. And then the next thing I immediately went to my own law enforcement sources. Like I said, this isn't my first rodeo. And my first book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, is about drug trafficking and the CIA and drug gun running and a lot of the elements that kept coming up in this. And so I went back to the sources that I had there. And then also sources within the uh, just sources that law enforcement in general, not directly connected to to this, but law enforcement sources in the United States and in Mexico that were monitoring all this. And it just became the rich field of people willing to talk, not on the record, many, but a lot, a lot were. A lot of the women from the LeBaron community have written their own memoirs even. And so it was, it's a rich vein. And out of that vein came The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land uh, by Sally Denton, who we're speaking to right now. Sally, where can people find this book? Well, pretty much everywhere. I mean, in Santa Fe, it collected works. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yes. Obviously. Uh, well, my website, www.sallydenton.com and obviously Amazon and anywhere else. I mean, it's everywhere and is getting a lot of attention nationally. And I think uh, there's an edition that's about to come out in Mexico as well. So it's it's widely available. Okay. Well, it, it's an absolute <laughs> it's a, a, a horrific it sounds like a horrific ride through uh through northern mexico but with great detail and an understanding of a probably very little understood or known group of fundamentalist mormons that are just across the border from us it's definitely a fascinating tale well sally thank you so much for joining us today any last thoughts uh, as we wind up No, not really. Just um, as I said, there's a lot of cautionary tales in there, not least as, as I mentioned, the water, but also what it's like for women to live in a community where the worthy man in the family is in control of every aspect of their lives. Not that that's about to happen in the United States, but it's certainly a mirror into 
or a glimpse into a world that is not that distant from us. On that cautionary note, (laughs) (laughs) we'll, we'll wind up. Thank you, Sally. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.